Hi everyone, I'm Ashley Minogue from OpenView's expansion team, where I help software startups accelerate their revenue growth to build long-lasting companies. This season on Build, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I'll speak with tech executives and founders to hear firsthand how they've leveraged a product-led growth model to put product at the center of their acquisition, conversion, and expansion strategies. Now on with the show. Today, we're talking about Dropbox, the fastest ever-growing SaaS company. They reached $1 billion in revenue in 10 years. I'm joined by Darius Contractor, a growth engineering lead there, to hear how Dropbox leveraged a product-led approach to unlock this historic momentum. Darius, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Of course. So Dropbox is a poster child for product-led growth, and I hope everyone out there is a Dropbox user themselves, but in the off chance they aren't, can you share what Dropbox is and your role there? For sure. So Dropbox is a service that allows you to store your files online and collaborate with people on content. And so what you can do is take all the files on your hard drive, upload them to Dropbox, share them with other people, collaborate with them live, and have your files safe in the cloud. It really merges all the applications that use your file system with cloud sharing and cloud backup and cloud content and allows you to collaborate across different computers and amongst different people. And so it's kind of your like shared collaboration hub in the cloud. We also have new products like uh, Dropbox Paper that allow you to collaborate on uh, like a freeform document with people in the cloud, live syncing your contents and supporting embeds from around the web. And how about your role there in your team? My role historically has been engineering manager. And more recently, I've transitioned into being in charge of growth process. So pretty much, I think of it as doing growth on growth, like helping <laughs> people who are in growth do growth faster, more efficiently, get into the data they need, the tooling, all that kind of stuff. That's great. And so Dropbox growth was fueled by this bottoms-up approach. So let's kick it off with just more generally, how do you know if a SaaS business is right for bottoms-up growth? It's important to contrast it with the non-bottoms-up growth. So classically, if you built a SaaS business, you'd have to build a product and then sell it. And so you'd have salespeople manually reach out to companies and see if they, that company needed the product. So you'd try to have a good list of companies that were probably good matches. You'd go to conferences. You'd also do marketing and to increase awareness of your product and have some inbound people seeking out your product. And so that's kind of more classic model of selling software, perhaps anything. So the trick with bottoms up is that you effectively have to have some methodology where people come figure out that your product exists and sign up and pay you independent of those sales channels and for the most part, those marketing channels. And so you have to think about, hey, is my product the kind of thing that somehow people will arrive at and then understand enough to buy independently without needing any handholding? So one of the things you want to look for is a product that ideally is inherently viral. If your product requires sharing with other people to get the full value out of your product, then you'll always have new people who are seeing your product for the first time from existing people using your product. And that is one very strong aspect of product-led growth. Another thing that can work is if people are simply searching for your product online. For instance, you know, most people realize at this point that they need a customer service solution, that they shouldn't just be answering emails. And so they might actually be searching customer service or customer service cloud app or something like that. And if you rank highly for it and people come to your site and they, they like what they see, they can sign up and pay you without a salesperson being part of the transaction. So virality is really important. But overall, if you just have some kind of channel whereby people can show up and use your product without a person being part of the loop, you have a really good chance of doing product-led growth. 
And Dropbox checks both of those boxes. So let's talk about Dropbox's story. So you guys early on were focused on user growth really before focusing on monetization and going up market to where you are today. So can you share some of that story with our listeners? Dropbox was just a breakaway product. When Drew first built you know, Dropbox folder syncing to the cloud, people just realized that, wow, I really need this. The UI is so easy. It really took something that was previously done with either FTP or local file servers or a lot of not as great solutions and made it incredibly simple, like really like install, drag files and incredibly powerful. Like once you put a file in there, moments later it was live on the web and you could download it from another computer or you could share it with another person. And this is just an incredibly strong capability with incredibly little effort invested, especially given that it was a freemium product. So you didn't even have to pay and you got this incredible power. And with such a simple and usable product meeting a market need at the time, Dropbox really took off in of itself. And so people would just want to use Dropbox because it was the best thing for sharing files and the best thing for sharing large videos and stuff like that that you couldn't easily email. So it just met a strong market need in a very easy, free way. And so already it was taking off. Then we launched three things that helped it take off even more that were all viral. One was shared folders. So the folder that you have syncing between your hard drive and the cloud, Dropbox, could also be shared with another person. So for instance, if you had a group of people working on designs together, one person could upload a design and another person could add their designs to the same folder and you'd have one folder sunk between computers. And so with that power, a lot of people would make their online workflows collaborative through Dropbox. So the Dropbox Freemium product gives you two gigabytes of free space, which is enough for a tremendous amount of things. But a lot of people, as they start using it more and more, fill up that space. And so what we launched was a referral program saying that if you invite a new person to Dropbox, you get 500 megabytes of free space. So you could double your space with just four referrals. And so people would take that referral code and put it on their blogs, send it out to friends, all kinds of things to kind of spread the message of Dropbox and get some free space. And so the person won because they got the space and Dropbox would win because we increased the number of people using Dropbox. So that went really viral and really increased our profile. The next thing we did was launch shared links. And so shared links allowed you to take a file and send someone a link to that file. So they don't have to sign up. They don't actually have to share the folder itself. They don't have to become a Dropbox member. They can just see that one file. And so that was very popular, as you might imagine, for, again, sharing videos, sharing large files. You can also share a directory. So you could put a bunch of files in a directory and share all of them. You could send invoices with that, all kinds of different things. And of course, when you share that, the person would always get the latest file. Because if you shared the link and then updated the file, they would see the newest one. And you wouldn't have this problem of emailing back and forth like old versions of files. And so that was incredibly popular as well. So people would share links to files. And so those are three different viral sharing techniques that were incredibly useful to users and match user needs but then also spread the word of Dropbox in simple, scalable ways. And I know all three have been impactful in driving Dropbox users' growth, but getting virality started isn't easy. So what are some you know, recommendations or ideas you have for listeners who are just starting out in terms of creating these viral loops? One thing is to think where your product requires more than one person. I like to say that a good viral product is broken without your friends. Meaning that without your friends there, you feel like, hey, I haven't got the full value of this product yet. Like something's missing. So for Dropbox, we have a pretty prominent share button on every file. And so you're kind of like, huh, maybe I should share some of these files. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's true. Other people need this information as well. Okay. And we have like a a sharing tab on the screen so you can see all the stuff that people have shared with you. So it's it's really a core part of our experience is, is sharing your content. And so not every product is as focused on sharing. Some things are more independent. But I really think that most products, it's surprising, you know, really, 
it's very hard to get work done in the world without someone's help. And so with your product, think about who are the different people who come and go from your product, or even who are the different approvers of the final content of your product, or the different people who even like stats on how your product is doing, even if they're not using it directly. For instance, you know, if you're in a sales organization, it's not just the salespeople who want to use it. It also might be the sales managers. It also might be IT. It might be some of your data analysts who want some of the data from the tool. There's all kinds of different roles in the company who might need to contact your tool. And so thinking about that, try to see if you can surface those relationships, maybe build features to super serve the intersection of those different roles in your company, like make an analytics dashboard, for instance. And then with these features that are very you know, collaboration centric, encourage people to then share. Say, hey, you're using it this way, why don't you share it with this other person to use it in the same way or you know, use it for their own needs and really see where those virality points are in the product. It's also something where you can take whatever you're doing and make a share outable part of it. So if you, know, if you build presentations, you can build sharing of those presentations, not just download. Then you can own that sharing experience and you can build like web share instead of local share. So I think with most products, there's some virality you can put into it. It can be difficult, like if your product is a database product and you, you know, install databases on people's systems, sometimes it's hard to see exactly how you'd immediately share that. But even with that, like part of your sales process, you can think about who are the people who need to know about this database? You know, can this database format reports that would be interesting to the whole company? And then you can put the you know, company's name on that report. For instance, Tableau is a database product at some level, a reporting product. And everyone in the company probably knows that they have Tableau because they see these reports and these links kind of go viral within the company. And so... Just thinking about what's the sharing mechanism related to your product can really help you build in some level of virality and get you some kind of free uptake or at least free mindshare within a company. All great points. And in addition to Dropbox, a lot of businesses out there in the market are thinking about how do we continue to promote virality like a Slack or a Typeform or lots of other fast-growing SaaS businesses. Yeah, and another, another thing to think about with uh, virality, to think about your product as a series of reactions for the user. So for instance, they come to the homepage and they're going to have some kind of reaction. They could say, hey, this product is for me or not for me or what have you. And then having signed up for the product, they could say, hey, like I should share this, I shouldn't share this, I feel uncomfortable, whatever it is at that point. Thinking about your viral loops in terms of reactions is really powerful. So most people who come to Dropbox have gotten a shared link before. They generally understand what the product is, and they generally understand how to use it in a basic way from the usage that's come into them. And so they start using the product in that basic way, And then they realize, wow, I should pretty much have everything in here. And having realized that, they put more things in, they share them themselves, and eventually they upgrade because they need a little more storage for all those things and features. And so in some ways, you can think of it as just a series of reactions to the different things that happen in the product that lead to the person becoming more engaged. It's similar with Facebook. You might first get an invite, dismiss it. You get more invites. You say, hey, I keep getting these invites. Maybe I will sign up. You sign up. The initial flow takes you to invite your friends. You're like, sounds good. I guess it's a social network. And then having done all that, you're like a a Facebook user. You have a feed. You come back to see the feed, and then you start posting. And so each time, both with the invites and with the posting, you see an example of someone else doing it, and you kind of copy their actions. And sequentially, by reacting to each of these things as they come up, you get more and more invested and engaged with the product. Such a great point. How do you build continued momentum to get a user more and more engaged? So what are some other design principles a SaaS business should keep in mind who's trying to fuel product-led growth? So one of the areas that I focus on when I advise companies is on user psychology. I've got this idea called Psych, which is kind of like a gas tank of user excitement. And so when someone first arrives on your site, they might have a certain amount of excitement about your site and exploring it. 
let's call it 50% full gas tank. And then as they go through the marketing material, if it really matches what they're looking for and it seems to solve a problem that they have, they might get more psyched. They might go up to like 65%. And then as they fill out your forms, as they get more into the details of it and the pricing page, their psych might go down. They might say, oh, maybe not, this is tough. But as long as their psych is above zero, they still have kind of gas in the tank for finishing your flow. And so the reason this is important is to think about each element on the page as an emotional interaction and think to yourself, is this something that's going to get the user more psyched or less psyched? And if they do get less psyched, the trick is using that psych in a way that's really valuable for your business. So it can sometimes be that you actually want to immediately ask them to do something that's very difficult, such as signing up, or even one thing Intercom does is very early in the signup flow, they ask you to take this copy-paste widget and put it on every page of your site. So that's a big ask that really uses up a lot of gas in the tank, but it's incredibly valuable for onboarding with Intercom. And so they build up the psych, and then they kind of use most of it on that one embed insert. But if they actually get that embed insert, they immediately have data on you. They can start popping up the chat widget. They can do all these things that is a really valuable use of that psych energy. So I really encourage people to think about what they have that can inspire users to continue with their flow and what the most valuable actions are to spend that user psych energy on and really try to cut out everything else. So how can someone use data to evaluate psych energy? So one thing is when you do A-B tests, for instance, Say you have a CTA asking people to like get started on the center of the page. If you try a different copy, different headlines, different text on the page, and you find that more people are clicking that button with a changed copy, effectively what you're doing is increasing user psych and then getting more people to actually click that button. Because clicking the button, going to the next page is some energy. You know, everyone's got a hundred other things to do today. If it looks like this is not going to work out for them, they might just bounce to their next email. And so Simply having people complete the flow is one indication that they have more psych. Another way to look at it is if you have a form that's very complicated, removing fields from the form would also usually increase the number of people who get through it. And so then you're using up less psych energy. So those are some of the ways to kind of use psych or measure it. It's more of kind of a, a scale to compare things to. It's also somewhat helpful from a gut feel perspective to just look at the different elements of the page and think to yourself, how much does the heading matter? And how much does like the footer copy matter? Probably the heading matters four to 10x the footer copy, if the footer copy is even visible. And so it's really important to think about for the different elements of the page, what really are the things that users look at to develop their like perspective on the page and that really move their psych energy? Great point. So at Dropbox, in your role, you mentioned you're helping growth happen faster and more efficiently. But a lot of businesses struggle with how to design their organizations to really continue to fuel growth. So can you talk about how Dropbox is organized and how your team works with the other teams at Dropbox to keep constant innovation and growth happening? Yeah. So it, it changes a lot, of course, as the company scales. So when Dropbox started, we just had one person working on growth, really, on the revenue side. And they would actually come up with experiments and do them themselves in the code. And that certainly is a, is a way to start if you have a single person who can do that end to end. I say in some ways the smallest growth team that can get something done is one product person or designer who's very growth minded and probably one engineer or web developer if you want to focus more on the front end. Sometimes those can be one person, but oftentimes even just having a team of two, one thinking about what to do and one doing it can be a great way to start in growth. Oftentimes if you add a third person, it'll be a data analyst because really in many ways doing growth well is about being very data aware. 
If you look at the data, you can see the opportunities in many cases. And it also, you need data awareness as you run experiments and you run them to StatSig and you roll them out. You need to have a really sharp perspective on like how to use your data and like what data to look at. And then as the company grows, you pretty much want to put more fuel on whichever fire is burning. So as an early growth team, you want to try out lots of different stuff all over the funnel. At the early, later stages, you know, with new users, older users, like all over the place, really to see what works, following intuition and the data, and just exploring kind of aggressively. Once you've done that some, you probably have a good idea what the levers are and what pages make the biggest difference. And then you can pretty much hire more growth people on the product side, engineering side, and on the data side to go pursue those biggest opportunities. And as you get bigger, think about opportunities beyond like tweaks and small changes and think about fundamental changes to the product, like different pricing structures, et cetera, that could make a big difference to how your flow works. And then as you scale the organization more and more, you'll eventually have separate growth teams and you need to make sure their metrics are aligned and each person can own a given flow and a given metric related to that flow and other teams can own a different area. Because one problem you can get into eventually is with kind of overlapping metrics or overlapping surface areas. And then it's a little bit hard to figure out who owns what. That's a much later problem. I think when I encourage companies to think about starting growth teams, I say that the best thing to do is find a metric that everyone cares about. That's usually either user growth or revenue growth. Those are some of the key metrics. And then try to find a surface area that no one cares about. And so that could be the payment page or the onboarding flow or something else where historically the company, both product and engineering, haven't really focused their resources. And the important thing about both these things is that growth in some ways is a plan to fail. Like when you're doing growth, when you're running experiments, you're planning to get probably at least 50% of the experiments are going to be failures. And if you're going to fail that much, you really need a surface area where you can make lots of changes without disrupting other teams or going back and forth with lots of process so you can do it quickly. And then you need a metric that when you do succeed, people really care. They say, wow, you really actually went to God a million dollars or, oh my gosh, you've increased user growth by 25%. That's really important. Because if you have that, you're going to have the freedom to try stuff out. And then you're also going to have support when you do succeed. If you don't have those things, it can be a lot slower and then success isn't as strong. And for those things, it's, it's, less, it's less exciting to have a growth team if you already have a lot of people working on an area and the, and the metrics aren't things that are people are really rallying around. Such great advice for anyone thinking about developing a growth team. Start with a metric people care a lot about and a surface area that's relatively untouched. Well, Darius, with that, I just want to thank you for chatting with me today and sharing the Dropbox story. Yeah, I really enjoyed the time. Good to chat. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators and founders every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Or you can follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture. Until next time.